Welcome to Modern Food Thinking. This is your host, Chef Jerome Picka, along with co-host Rachel Lucas, owner of Fueling Strong. The show is brought to you by Spazio Rosso Interior Design. And here we present to you our unique perspectives on food as it relates to health and wellness. In today's episode titled Milk and Dairy, Milking the Science, we will take a deep dive into this white liquid, provide some alternatives to milk choices, and explain why many people are unable to tolerate cow's milk. For our listening audience, I remind you that we are not offering medical advice or advocating a particular manner of medical treatment. Always consult with your doctor before making any changes to your health care and understand the science behind your treatments. There are just two professionals having a nice little chat about milk and cookies. So Rachel, I thought we could start off today's discussion with standard off-the-shelf cow's milk. Are there any health benefits or are we deluding ourselves by believing clever advertising and marketing? Many studies and decades of research have shown that we start losing the ability to produce lactase, which is the enzyme needed to digest lactose after early childhood, typically around the age of 12. And that's when the ability to break down lactose into a useful carbohydrate is lost. Only about 30% of the human population is able to produce lactase into adulthood. And with that said, let's jump into this discussion. And Rachel, I know you have a position on this. Oh, dairy. Uh, This has to be a topic that sparks a lot of debate. I personally do not believe dairy stands up to its common popularity. Uh, Let me start by saying that you can get all the nutrients found in dairy from other foods, definitely including plants. And dairy comes with a lot of potential issues. I'd love to highlight some of those. So first of all, humans are the only mammals that continue the consumption of dairy after infancy. And if you feel like you have a dairy sensitivity, to your point, Jerome, you probably do. So after infancy and childhood, our production of lactase, which is that enzyme that breaks down lactose, sharply declines, changing your ability to digest the milk products that you're consuming. Uh, It becomes harder for you to digest without this enzyme, leading to some potential digestive distress. Uh, Also, I think it's important to note that lactose is a form of sugar. We've talked about this before, um, the problem with sugar consumption, and I don't think that most people realize that it's naturally a part of all dairy products. If you are consuming full-fat dairy, the digestion of the sugars is slowed down by the fat, which can be helpful. But most of what I see is people consuming low-fat or fat-free dairy, which allows the sugar and carb load of that lactose to really affect your blood sugar and insulin levels. So Jerome, before I turn it over to you, I'd love to share a story sort of proving my point here. And the story is about my dad. So he has type 1 diabetes, meaning he has to constantly check his blood sugar and administer his own insulin to control it. And back in September of 2020, he decided to cut out all dairy from his diet, including the 2% milk he's been putting in his coffee for probably the last 40 years. And after just a few days of no dairy in his coffee, he noticed that he required less insulin in the morning. I knew this would happen, um, but he was really excited to learn this and have it backed up with actual data and numbers. So what does this mean for our listeners? It's that all low-fat dairy could be wreaking havoc on your blood sugar regulation and your insulin sensitivity. 
Rachel, I'm so sorry to hear about that, uh, that regarding your dad, but I'm very glad he made a change in his diary consumption. This actually brings me to a good talking point, and that is the research on dairy conducted by Walter Willett, a professor of epidemiology and nutrition at Harvard University. Walter Willett re uh, reviewed more than uh, 100 studies related to dairy and found the evidence of its supposed health benefits to be surprisingly thin, starting with the very methodology by which U.S. dairy guidelines were determined, as reported by Lindsay Morris in 2020. Uh, Willett also found that men who drank two or more glasses of milk a day were twice as likely to develop advanced prostate cancer. His research was supported by many follow-up studies and published as a meta-study last year in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. I know as a child, my parents believed in the clever marketing that drinking cow's milk built strong bones. I thought it made some crazy sort of sense because cows have strong bones. At least I assumed they did when I was a child. And if cows have strong bones and the advertisements say it's good for you, well, then it must be good for you to drink, right? Well, this seems to be an ongoing argument driven in part by politics, money, and actual science. According to several studies, for example, the National Institutes of Health and the BBC in 2016 and 2019, both published research that supported the health benefits of drinking milk for children. However, no definitive upper age limit was given. On the other side of this perspective is the, the uh, Willett study begun in 1951 by Mark Hegstead at Harvard University. And Willett was a graduate student of Hegstead. He took up the study of milk consumption where Mark Hegstead left off. Willett started studying the health benefits in, of consuming cow's milk in the uh, 1970s and building on the professional's follow-up health study and also the nurse's health study. He published many articles on food and health and nutrition, but he may be best known for his book titled Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy, published in 2001. And contrary to what my parents thought about bone health and milk, all based on clever advertising again, is that published research stated in 1997 that there was absolutely no relationship between calcium intake and risk of fracture. I'd love to jump in here and point out another study which was released in 2007. This was based on eight epidemiological studies and five controlled trials, meaning the study looked at a lot of people over a long time span. And it showed that women who drank two and a half glasses or more of milk per day actually had a higher bone fracture risk than those who drank less than one glass. This published research was specific to women because the calcium needs for men and women are very different. One other study published in 2012 followed 6,712 girls between the ages of 9 and 15, and they found no correlation between milk consumption and stronger bones. And that's not it. In research for this episode, I found numerous studies that proved there is no link between milk consumption and stronger bones. I'm sure we have listeners thinking, wait, I thought I needed calcium to build strong bones. And that thinking isn't wrong. You do need calcium, also magnesium, which works as a cofactor to calcium and bone health, along with a handful of other micronutrients. But you can get all your micronutrients and mineral needs through other foods such as nuts, seeds, leafy green vegetables like collard greens, kale, spinach. You make a great point, Rachel, and I'll say that in the 30 years I've spent as a chef studying food, health, and nutrition, I have come to learn a few things regarding the science of cow's milk. But before I get to that, I would love to mention a few foods that are high in calcium and magnesium, including a few that, that you have already mentioned, Rachel. 
at the top of uh, my list for calcium are green leafy vegetables such as spinach, kale, kohlrabi, Swiss chard, and bok choy. And from the cruciferous family is broccoli and rapini. As for fruits, dark berries are a top choice, followed by tangerines, kiwi, passion fruit, oranges, prickly pear, guava, and passion fruit. Now, all of those foods sound a lot yummier to me than a glass of milk. Uh, a couple other ones that I wanted to mention, chia seeds are pretty high in calcium, along with almonds as well. Really good point. So listeners, hopefully the items we just mentioned will be helpful to our listeners and provide some guidance. Uh, I do want to get back to a bit of the science regarding cow's milk. I'll start with the process of developing productive dairy cows. Cows need to eat and large-scale dairy operations need to make money. It stands to reason that cows are only useful when they are healthy and producing milk. Therefore, it is in the best interests of an industrial farm operation to keep dairy cows not only alive for as long as possible, but also producing milk as fast and for as long as possible. This is achieved by feeding dairy cows a thing called silage, usually corn, that has a high neutral detergent fiber content, which sounds super healthy already. Hmm. But adding in antibiotics in advance of infection to prevent cattle from getting sick is certainly not something I advocate as part of a healthy eating plan. Rachel, I don't know if our listeners realize that 70% of all antibiotics distributed in the U.S. is used for animal feed. Ionophores are the most common form of antibiotic used, and they, they do help increase uh, feed efficiency and growth rate by promoting food and water intake. I'm almost certain that our listeners don't realize either that in the U.S., taxpayer money to the tune of $4.5 billion is used to subsidize dairy farms. Number two, I just want to add a bit more explanation before I turn it over to, to you, Rachel, and that is the difficulties of usable corn for silage uh, have been decreasing corn availability in the past few years, a result to some degree of water shortages, mycotoxin contamination, and monocultured fields. This is a problem for us because we consume the product of animal growth techniques. Soy, barley, and sorghum have become good alternatives to corn silage, but they are as lacking in nutrient value for the cows as corn is. So this brings us back to square one and the dismal outlook being that if cows are eating unhealthy foods, they will produce unhealthy milk. I do recognize the fact that young animals are usually fed a diet of natural forage, which includes grasses, that period does not last very long in large feedlot operations, which is where you will find your grocery store milk is coming from. Ugh, yikes. I've heard that statistic regarding antibiotic use in dairy cows, and it's really terrible to think of drinking all of that down. Uh, another note I would like to make here, our listeners have heard me share that I eat a diet relatively high in animal proteins, but I do not consume dairy on a regular basis. Part of that is because the standards for dairy cows um, are just not as well regulated as some of the standards for the meat that we're eating. Uh, I eat meat under the caveat that it's ethically raised and cared for, and I find that much harder to be sure of when it comes to dairy. So that's just one of the reasons I tend to avoid it. Well, Rachel, I'm with you 100% on this. I have not mentioned uh, the bovine supplemental growth hormones, which are added to feed to speed up the growth rate of cattle. So I mentioned it here. This is more prevalent, however, in beef cattle than dairy cattle. But in large feedlot operations, bovine growth hormones are part of the manufacturing process, and I am using the term manufacturing intentionally. 
So it's time we pivot now to a listener question. This came in a short time ago, and this is from Jim from Danvers, and he is asking, every time I eat cheese, I feel like I just can't stop. All I want is more cheese or other food. Is it me? What's going on? And Rachel, maybe you can take this. Yes, this is something I love to talk about. Jim, you are not alone. Dairy products, including including cheese, yogurt, milk, etc., have a very unique ratio of fat to carbohydrates that is not found naturally in any other food. So why is this ratio important? Well, this unique ratio taps in to the primitive part of our brain, which shuts off our fullness cues. This happens so that in infancy, babies can eat a lot. Uh, It's the same ratio found in breast milk and baby formulas. So this is useful for babies because they are growing rapidly and they need to eat a lot of calories. This is less useful as adults, especially when we are trying to control our appetite or perhaps lose weight. Often people's diets are so saturated with dairy, it's hard to notice. We put milk in our coffee, we have yogurt as a snack, we have cheese on our salad, we have ice cream for dessert, and I'm all about self-experimentation. So if you feel like your appetite is endless, see what happens with 30 days with no dairy products. Well, Jim, that was a great question. And Rachel, that was a great answer. I can tell you that a great alternative to bovine sourced milk, other than usual plant-based milk, such as soy, almond, oat, rice milk, and a few others that we'll talk about, is goat or sheep's milk. These are some of my favorites. A little science background can help. Milk contains a protein called beta-casein. This plays a large part in the lactose intolerance you may experience. There are two types of this protein that cows produce. One is the A1 and the other is the A2 beta casein protein. The A1 protein is the one that causes the typical sense of bloating and feeling gassy, whereas the A2 is more easily digested by the human body. Jersey cows and the ubiquitous black and white Frisian cow produce between 15 to 40% of the A2 protein in their milk. But here's the interesting part. Sheep's milk and even goat's milk contains only the A2 variant, the good one. It also contains oligosaccharides, which is a carbohydrate containing three to 10 sugar units and digested in the large intestine where it promotes healthy gut bacteria. In other words, it acts as a great prebiotic by slipping right past the small intestine. And finally, the lipid sizes are much smaller than those found in cow's milk, lipids being the fat molecules. Being smaller means they are easier to digest. And I personally love yogurt made from sheep or goat's milk because it is easier to digest for me. But keep in mind that both sheep, goat, and even yak or camel's milk produce milk that has has a higher fat content than cow's milk. But remember, the fat molecules are much smaller. And yes, you definitely can drink yak or camel milk. I would love to know where you find yak or camel milk. I have never seen those. But I also wanted to say that I have just learned something new here. I do know from personal experience that I tolerate goat's milk better than cow's milk. And now I know why. So I'm sure some of our listeners are feeling uh, excited about that little science lesson. The last point I would like to bring up about dairy and milk consumption is its potential to cause inflammation. So many adults cannot break down lactose. Remember, we basically stop producing lactase as adults. This can lead to some low-grade chronic inflammation, which might not sound like much, but the results can be joint pain, acne, and asthma problems. Now, I will admit the research here is not concrete, 
There are different lactose levels in different dairy products along with other micronutrients. For example, yogurt has probiotics, which can be anti-inflammatory, and it is generally lower in lactose, whereas cheese tends to be higher in lactose. So the science, again, isn't concrete. But if you are someone who struggles with any of those issues, check with your doctor and try out a dairy-free diet for a little while and see what happens. You really have nothing to lose. Rachel, those are great points. And I do want to touch on one particularly nasty danger associated with consuming bovine products, and that is bovine spongiform encephalopathy. So this was a serious problem in the heaviest milk drinking populations around the globe a few decades ago, and I believe it is important to mention this because mad cow disease, as it is more commonly known, still pops up on occasion and certainly exists as a potential health threat when consuming any part of a cow, including its milk. The encephalopathy is a result of cannibalism. In other words, using cattle organ meat, also known as offal, which is not fit for human consumption, into the feed for uh, cattle. When tainted bovine product is consumed by humans, it causes a protein, a prion, in the brain to unfold. It will manifest itself as a disease in humans known as variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, Kuru, or in some cases, spongiform encephalopathy. So in 2018, a total of 231 cases were reported worldwide, and unfortunately, there is no cure. Eek, that sounds pretty terrible. Um, I remember it was maybe several years ago that mad cow disease was being talked about a lot, and I think people have kind of stopped talking about it, but it's obviously um, still quite a big problem. So I was reading something about this recently by Diana Rogers, who is doing some really great work on educating the community on a case for better meat. And she talked about this being a huge problem in conventional cattle raising, but it is almost non-existent in grass-fed or pasture-raised and humanely raised farm animals. And that's another reason to really check out the sourcing of not only your animal products, but also where your dairy is coming from. Yeah, Rachel, I'm glad you brought up sourcing and also provided good source for information. Uh, so that was Diana Rogers and her book, Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat, which I haven't read, but I will definitely add it to my list of next up reading. It sounds fascinating to me and I love to read. So getting back to my earlier point on alternative dairy choices and our recommendations for alternative choices to cow's milk, I will just say that my go-to choices are coconut and oat. I do use other tree nut milks on occasion, but it can be a problem for people with allergies. Same for oat milk if the oats are processed in a facility that handles wheat products. The risk for uh, cross-contamination is high, and oats, which are naturally gluten-free, can easily be tainted with airborne particulates. And Rachel, I believe you have some tree nut allergies, which prevent you from using almond milk, cashew milk, and other types of milks derived from droops. It would be great to our listeners if you could speak to that. Yes. So milk alternatives have been really tricky for me. I am allergic to all tree nuts, almonds, as well as soy. And I actually don't tolerate oat milk very well. I mainly use coconut milk. And I've actually tried some really interesting seed replacements as well. Uh, there's a company out there making cream cheese out of sunflower seeds. And just something to think about. Jerome and I talk a lot about eating real whole foods. Now, I think if you are using coconut milk or even almond milk, oat milk, the processing is reasonably low, but some of these dairy-free 
alternatives, um, whether they're for cheese or coffee creamers, they get really um, creative with their ingredients. And just because something is dairy-free does not mean it's a healthy food. I pulled a label from a popular low-calorie dairy-free creamer, and let me just read the ingredients to you. Water, cane sugar, palm oil, and then it does say 2% or less of sodium cassinate, dipotassium phosphate, carrageenan, mono and diglycerides, natural and artificial flavors, sodium sterile, lack something. I'm, I can't even pronounce these. And the last ingredient is salt. So I apologize for my, um, my stumbling. But my point here is dairy-free doesn't always mean healthier. And you've got to read your labels always and find something that works for you and your body. Uh, Rachel, that, that you're fine with your pronunciations. It's confusing. And if you can't pronounce what you're reading on the label, to Rachel's point, try not to uh, not to choose that particular product. But just listening to that makes it sound awful. And um, Rachel, I have to say thank you very much for bringing up those points. And, and your pronunciations were as good as they're going to get. Readers, to Rachel's point, if you can't pronounce it, it's probably not worth buying or consuming. So uh, I just had a few thoughts I wanted to add to your points, Rachel. And uh, the sodium sterile that you mentioned is a subgroup of steroids and does occur naturally in some plants. However, in the case of this label, the sodium sterol, sodium caseinate, and added salt is simply too much salt. It's compounded with the addition of carrageenan, which makes it harder to digest and can lead to inflammation of the lining of the stomach and intestinal wall. Our advice, again, is to read your ingredient labels. Uh, on that note, it's time to wrap up today's show. We hope you have learned something about milk and dairy, and I will reiterate that it is important to listen to the advice of your medical professional. We thank you for listening to this episode of Modern Food Thinking with Jerome Pekka and Rachel Lucas, owner of Fueling Strong and edited by Jeremy Nessel. Our next episode will air in two weeks, where we will discuss another topic of great interest related to food health and nutrition. Please join us then. You can listen to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, through the free app for iOS and Android, or wherever you get your podcasts. To sign up for Rachel's private coaching sessions, visit her website at fueling-strong.com. Sign up for private group or general cooking classes. Visit me at chef-jerome.com. This is Jerome Pekka. And this is Rachel Lucas. From both of us, we hope you stay well, eat well, and be well. 